So you can hear me loud and clear, bio, yes? Nice and clear. Great, great. Look, I just want to thank you for taking the time. It's uh, it's wonderful to have a chance to um, get your thoughts. Okay, so the uh, the immediate context for our conversation um, is the preparation of uh, uh, a report uh, by the Wellbeing Economy Alliance Hub for the island of Ireland. We've been running yeah. a, a few deep dives with uh, our cultural creatives, our artists and activists who see a particular role for, for the creative in uh, drawing attention to the, the dominant economic narratives and also creating visibility for new ways of being um, uh, in, the, in the context of the, the economy, consumerism, um, questioning the, the hold that the dominant economic narrative has on our minds and uh, bodies. My first question really is the, uh, the question of uh, the role of the artist potentially in the context of uh, drawing attention to um, and, and assisting us in engaging with a, a more critical disposition in the context of these dominant uh, economic narratives of capital and neoliberalism. Right. Um, I, I think, brother, that the that captivity is um, fundamentally sensorial. Um, so this is the reason why, why I'm fond of speaking about ontological mutiny or sensorial apostasy. The language reaches out for the same kind of, um, of effect without wanting to terminate at legible and fully intelligible futures, right? Which I think is some form of a trap. I, my, my understanding is delusion in, in a sense that, um, in a sense, what colonization, what white modernity what uh, European modernity, what it effectuates is some kind of captivity, it, a hold on subjectivity, uh, the manufacturing of the subject, right? Um, the dissociated self, who is alone, who is um, um, trapped, who is rendered um, dependent on systems of systems that perpetuate suffering. Right. Um, and, and in that sense, there, there is, um, there is, it feels like there's an invitation for us to lose our way. You know, I'm speaking with the cadence of my elders who in the Proverbs, Yoruba Proverbs from West Africa would say that the times are urgent, let us slow down or rather, and that's my own twist on it, um, that in order to find your way, you must become lost. I think getting lost is, 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 is some kind of craft is you, you might almost think about it as the, as the logic of the fugitive, right? And, and if art is anything here, um, it is, if, if it's work is anything here, it is about reframing those boundaries that we're used to you know, and allowing us to wander and move 
and notice the world in different ways than the grammar of our captivity can notice. Um, so um, if capitalism is some kind of sensorial work, if economies and economics and, and how we move around the world, if the normative is sensorial, then the work of decoloniality, the work of um, coming to different kinds of futures is uh, mutiny of some kind. So we need mutiny. You're looking for mutineers. Very good. Just yeah. uh, give me a little note on your uh, the, the influence of Deleuze on your thinking. Can you just give us a little bit of a, 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 a summary of how those ideas have really given you a, a language, I suppose, to, uh, to take forward the, 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 the critique that you've, uh, you, you've obviously um, uh, amplified and expanded on in your writing and in various uh, conversations? Well, not just Deleuze, but his um, whole gang of thieves, if you will. It's Guattari, it's Tosquiel, it's Simondon, processual thinkers. It's Whitehead, it's uh, Henry Bergson, it's the people that disturb the idea of the thing being all by itself. But Deleuze, especially with his thinking with assemblages, right, and agency and affectivity and, and especially the idea of the lines of flight, right? So I'm not sure how, how much you know about the French visionary. I think he lived from the thirties to 1996. Um, Deleuze and Guattari actually drew heavily from him. His name was Fernand Deligny, and he was an educator in post um, Second World War um, France. He he did some work at La Borde and and worked with especially autistic children, building this renegade visionary community of artists, right? And their work was not to rehabilitate the autistic child; it was to accompany the autistic child, to stay with the autistic child, you know, they, they critique the Lacanian idea that, um, language is fundamental to a properly functioning self, right? And they stayed with the child trying to get from the other side of language to see what subjectivity might be blurring out. So this, this, this idea that even what we have framed as pathology might be a portal, might be a platform of fugitivity might be a, a, a way of upsetting or disrupting normative subjectivities or normal pathies, right, um, is, is dear and central to my work. So when I think in terms of black scholarship and the eddies and the drifts and the hums and the moments around, um, the, the slave trade, the transatlantic slave trade and the lessons from those um, Afro-Caribbean diasporic spiritualities and what they learned in the plantation and what they created and they devised, you know, all of this coming to a critique of the man, the anthropos, um, Deleuze coincides beautifully with that, with that movement, with that vocation to see the world, not as a collection of disparate parts, but as a network of heterogeneous bodies in their co-becoming, right? And so this, this for me, um, it, it, it really isn't about 
crafting some new system, right? I'm, I'm very wary about um, attempts to gather the geniuses in a room so that we can summarily devise the next kind of system in the world because it already presumes, the presupposition is that we, we are outside of these systems then. Uh, we can just think about the next one. It's very anthropocentric, very hubristic to believe that we can just do that. Um, but we are imbricated. We are part of the world that we critique, right? So my work uh, cent centers and revolves and meanders and lurks around the idea of cracks, right? Where a crack is an opening of some kind. It's a coalescing of, um, of affect, of capacity to do. It's some kind of generative incapacitation or failure. So that, brother, what you, you're calling for and what this feels like to me is like um, an invitation to stay in the cracks of failure. You know, that's where art thrives, not on the surface, but in the subterranean, in the subaltern. That's where new subjectivities are born. But we need feedback loops. We need a craft of some kind, a politics that notices and celebrates these openings. I've always... Uh, um fascinated when you when you present uh your ideas in those terms the uh and i know that you have a particular uh way to frame this around post activism um, yes but the the the, the 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 instinctive response is to ask you well what does that look like in terms of a a movement and i i know that you want to avoid the conventional notions of movement but nevertheless yes. if we're if we're serious about power, uh, resistance, uh, shifting the system in some way, or maybe not. Um, what does it look like in terms of uh, a movement uh, and uh, a kind of a, a collective or effective set of uh, 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 practices of resistance if it's not the conventional uh, organization that you're th thinking about? Um, here is where um, the, 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 the ideas, I think the best way to come into this, to dance with this question is to, first of all, notice that these are not framed with humanist understandings of agency centralized or in mind. So I'm not starting from the empowered individual, <laughs> right? Um, this is, this is the history of the liberal world order, right? All, I mean, we could start, I, I know origins are never that simplistic, but we could take a mark and start from 1948 and Hiroshima and all the things that the world did to try to coalesce around the ontology of the human, you know, the creating of the institutions, the United Nations, NATO, a World Health Organization, the World Bank, IMF, you know, all this idea of rebuilding it was an ontological project and we're still in that ontological project. So it becomes very, very difficult for people to understand the world apart from, you know, starting from what do we do about it? Where do we start? Right. <laughs> right. Um, but my instinct is not to think in terms of individuals taking action. Um, it is to notice that action is constantly happening around us. It, it doesn't revolve around human intentions. The world is constantly weaving desire 
in multitudinous and surprising and unexpected ways. And we are enlisted in these weavings, these braidings. We might like to think of ourselves as the originators of action, but we are not the originators of action. We are part of ecologies of acting together with, right? I'm hybridizing that. Um, so in that sense, post-activism is not the next thing to do, <laughs> right? I never think of it as here's a set of fresh new ideas that you can run with. I think of it as an interruption in the field, an interruption in the field, like a crack, like an opening, um, a disruptive prophetic opening that weaves us differently. Uh, I'm just going to quote Delini here that I'm paraphrasing him when he says that, you know, it's not the spider that weaves the web. The web is not the project of the spider. The web is the project of the web, right? There, there, there is a sense in which we want to reduce it to uh, the units we're used to. Like the spider weaves the web. No, the project of the web is the web. So I'm thinking about all the, all the ways that we are being enlisted, compelled, and summoned into new kinds of work. And these new kinds of work maybe looks nothing like work. It may look as ordinary, as molecular, as being the father to an, an autistic child. You know, it may never rise to the moment of this is movement and this is ordinary everyday living, right? It blurs the boundaries between these two um, sectors, if you will, if you want to think in sectorial ways, like modernity often compels us to. Um, However, there is a craft here. And my work is around how, how, how does a politics begin to articulate itself here? So I, I'm, I'm working along the lines of thinking with other post-humanist scholars to craft something that I call chiasmography, for instance. And chiasmography is ethnography within the cracks, right? It's, it's a fancy word for how do we trace and begin to trace our sensorial affinities with land, with where we're eating, with how we move with other beings, right? And how, how, how does this allow us to take on new shapes, right? The, the instigator here is not the empowered individual or the human self. It is the crack. The crack becomes the instigator for new kinds of politics and imaginations. Now you, you ask me, how does that look like? It's, it's, it's left to, it's left to come. I, I don't know, <laughs> right? It could take diff, entirely different shapes in Ireland and take on a, a shape that is more familiar in India, right? But whatever it is, it is still an opening of some kind, a non-human opening to new kinds of agency. Okay. Let, let, let me push you, um, because I'm, I'm still interested in, uh, and what and in, in what this looks like, uh, and I, and I, yeah. I take everything that you've said, uh, and I, I completely accept. And it seems to me that our intuition that this is the realm of art and craft, yes. you yes. know, and the and the creative, you know, I think our intuition is is correct, and, uh, and this conversation is very useful from that point of view. But I just wonder if uh, can I tempt you to um, identify. Uh, what we might describe as peers, exemplars, practitioners, you know, can you describe their practice uh, uh, in those terms as, as, as faithful to the, 
the craft and working with the cracks? Are there artists, for example, who are already uh, alive to this disposition that you have described? Um, in terms of contemporary, uh, contemporary, um, contemporaries, um, friends, artists who are dancing along these lines. I mean, I can name names. Um, uh, the great Brian Masumi and Erin Manning in Canada, and they're far, you know, framed along the lines of Guattari's three ecologies of the self come to mind. Um, my family here, um, which is large and what we're doing and surrounding in terms of my son, who is autistic and how we framed our life educationally around his work in the world comes to mind. Um, and, um, Delini again, I know of course is, is very late right now, but Delini comes to mind again and again and his visionary work in the South of France, um, accompanying those children. Um, let me see if I could trace out a genealogy of what, of action, if you will. This crack that I speak of is another way that I think about it is syncopation, right? Um, and I'm not going to go deep into rhythm theory to explain that, but, but that when a groove or when a piece of music is disrupted, new elements come in and enhance danceability. And you can get into the downbeat and the upbeat and what that means. But the idea of syncopation is like a mass disabling event of some kind. And what I'm trying to say here is that at some level, the supremacist projects, the clearing of whiteness, which is not white people, as you probably have heard me say, whiteness is not white people. Whiteness is a geoengineering project, right? A cultural project, right? And it can enlist black bodies. It can enlist cyborgs to it if it, if it wants to. It's not about the color of one's skin, even though that's the avatar and that's the premise of its work. Um, this supremacist project is being um, disrupted by psychic forces. Um, we're beginning to feel the world in different ways. And you can speak about the mass traumatic intergenerational effects spilling and disrupting the individualizing work of whiteness. You can speak about the eco, sexual, political, corporeal disruptions afoot. You can speak about pandemics and viruses and microbial activisms, right? At many levels, we're being disrupted, even in the ways we're telling stories and anticipating the future. I'm thinking that these um, cracks emerging everywhere are opportunities and not in the entrepreneurial sense, because you would need to have an idea of where you're going for you to be entrepreneurial, but they're openings of some kind. And I think of them as political agents, right? We would like to put a bandaid on it, which is the reason why Erin Manning would say whiteness polices the cracks or Another dear friend who is doing some work around post-activism, in my opinion, Wendy Holloway, professor of psychology, would say that psychology is a policeman of capitalism, right? So th th there, there, there is a sense in which it's not, we're not moving towards the human. We're moving towards the post-humanist to address a very human crisis. 
um, to address these matters. And the forms that are being taken are local or amniotic or gestural, you know, um, Vanessa Andriotti, I'm not sure if you know about her work, speaks about hospice in modernity. And her work is very forced activist in that sense. Like, how do we build maps of, of large systems and structures? And how do we compost that and notice how we can move in the world differently? So it's taking on different shapes. It can be archival in one place. It could be storytelling in another place. It could be speculative fabrication in a different place. It, it's, it's an ecology of multiple practices instigated by this disruption that I notice as post-activism. Right. And given, given our interest uh, in uh, the, the realm of art and, uh, you know, bringing, I suppose, bringing something new into the world and, and the sensitivities that, that can go with the artistic uh, practice, can yeah. you say a, li a, li a little bit more about the... Uh, the way in which you're you're using the idea of sound and uh, the the language of of sound and, and rhythm to really describe and give us a purchase on uh, on on those interruptions that you're talking about. It's just uh, because of the it, it it resonates, I suppose, with the constituency that we're working with uh, in terms of the the musicians, for example. Beautiful, um, and I love that. In asking that question, so many musical metaphors were spilling through you as well, resonating and, and all of that language. Um, I, I started to learn recently, um, I'm not musically trained, you know, um, but, but I pick up things along the way. And I started to learn with a world famous drummer, right? Who is a friend. And, and I've been learning so many rich things about uh, the kick drum and the hi-hat and the, <laughs> and the upbeat and the downbeat. What was fascinating to me was the monotony, the imperial march of the downbeat. The downbeat is the kick drum. It's doom, doom, doom. And it almost sounds militaristic, right? It's this doom, doom, doom. And that's it. That's all there is to it. The downbeat all by itself doesn't really lend itself to danceability, right? But when you sneak between the invisible spaces, the soft openings, you know, the, the, the middling, the weak 16s, uh, between each stroke, each imperial stroke, there are beautiful invocations. There are economies, there are ecologies there. There are subaltern practices there. And that's the upbeat, right? So it's, uh, it's not just, <clears throat> it is doom. <clears throat> and then danceability is, you know, enhanced. So the upbeat is disruptive in a sense, and it enhances rhythm. It moves the body in different ways. I like to think about dance, for instance, as the body at large, right? It's like the body introducing itself to its topography, to its vastness, right? And, and, and that already lends itself, I could work with that for years, that idea that colonization is a shrinking of the body to occupy categories of convenience and dance breaks through those categoricities to help the body meet its odd kin, right? Its cousins, right? And if our work is decolonial, 
then dance does something, offers a language, you know, to, to help us sonically move through these spaces. So I I'm writing a lot about, in fact, my essay that I'm writing that is right now on my screen is called white syncopation on white syncopation. That is how the flatness of whiteness is being curdled. I'm using milky language as well. It's being curdled or disrupted or compelled in new directions. You know, this is the Lewis comes in brilliantly here again with eminence instead of transcendent transcendence. And I'm, I'm really trying to encourage my peers and colleagues to not think of white supremacy or whiteness as a transcendent evil thing that we have to get rid of, right? Because immediately we start to think about it that way, then we have gotten trapped in its cosmology. So composting it means noticing it is material. It is syncopatable. And I just made up that word, but I'm sure you understand what I mean. It is, it is good material to make out new kinds of futures with. Yes. Right. Yes. You, you reminded me of, uh, Peter Hershock, the, the child Buddhist scholars, uh, use of the imagery of jazz and improvisation, uh, yes. to describe the, uh, I suppose the profound, uh, interruptions that come with the, I suppose the jazz the is good and child, and child mind, yeah. yeah, the beginner's mind. Um, yeah. I, I'm, I have a, a big interest, uh, in, uh, non-duality, um, yeah. especially where that, uh, um, I suppose where that entails uh, work on ourselves, you know, there's the, the, the meditative tradition, the yogic tradition, and it's it's all it, it, it's all offered in a sense with a view to embodying and exploring that uh, non-dual and overcoming of a profound experience that comes from the kind of Euro Euro modern project. Um, is, is, is that part of your interest in, in non-duality, the work that we're doing on our bodies and minds as a way to open ourselves to these forms of improvisation and uh, dwelling in those cracks or even recognizing those cracks that you, that you talk about? Mm -hmm. To the extent that non-dualities, um, and, and, I, and I don't usually use non-duality in the in the sense that has gained popularity, right? Um, when I speak about non-duality, when I listen for it, when I dance with the concept, I'm gesturing towards um, um, the trickster. I'm, I'm, I'm looking for the third path, if you will, without it being some Hegelian dynamic of a synthesis of an antithesis and thesis. Um, the third path here being a disruption of those binaries, which modernity deploys to frame hegemonic relations, right? Light and dark, God and man, male and female, right? It's, it, it's, it's those problematic dualisms, which are also binaries that, that govern relationships. Um, my, my thinking, um, catches the comet of indigenous and eco-feminist and post-humanist scholarship, 
and tries to break through those binaries to see what other forms of relationships are kindled in the breaking open of those hegemonic relationships, right? Um, and, and I don't know that that necessary, necessarily um, collapses at the feet of some of the practices today that go under the heading of non-duality. Like there is an intense focus on interiority, right? Which, you know, brings back for me the, uh, or, or rather it, it creates for me a problematic delinking again of the self and its world. Right. It, 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 it's like we're navel gazing and I'm not, and I'm not sure I cannot, of course, I'm not sure that I can describe everything monolithically as navel gazing. No, I wouldn't do so. Um, but, but it does seem to me that a lot of practices today collapse at this quest for wholeness um, in a world that is too promiscuous, too dynamic for stabilized notions of healing and wholeness as some people that I, and, and some communities that I've been involved with uh, might want to understand non-duality as promising, right? Like the, the thing to do here is to take care of our spirits, is to align our chakras and 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 I'm like, I don't I don't trust alignment now. Mm. I, d I don't trust it. So 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 non-duality it it does it, it may not look like it, it's just like how people speak about entanglement. Popular understandings of entanglement, you know, the way that it has been taken to do other things, other work, is, is not how I would understand it from my own readings of quantum physics and quantum field theory, right? Um, or the non-dual, non, uh, the dual split experiment, for instance. What entanglement is doing there isn't exactly what people think it's doing when they use it as a catch-all phrase for everything is right with the world and we're good, right? And I'm not quite sure about that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, no, I, 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 there, there is a, there's, there's very good critical literature on these practices of ascesis. And I, I think you're, you're identifying some of the, the risks of a return to pure introspection. Uh, yeah, and, and then a kind of a, a default acceptance, really, of of, of how the world uh, has uh, captured our attention, in particular. Yeah. Um, yeah. I did. I want to return a little bit to the the notion of the well being economy. That's the, those okay. are the two uh, phrases that that have been used by um, well members of the the network now, for which you are an ambassador. And it seems to me there's a there's an interesting, well, there's a whole series of interesting juxtapositions now between well-being and economy from your point of entry, and I just, I just wondered if you might say a little bit more about the way in which you understand the the uh, the dominant economic narrative, uh, capital neoliberalism, which is also of course described as a form of euro-liberalism because it's 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 capturing and reproducing subjectivities. It's not yeah. it's not a, a set of practices that are separate from our own uh, yes, our yeah. own uh, complicity. Um, if, from your uh, 
your understanding. Um, how does the uh, the, 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 the economy um, give expression to this uh, cage that you've talked about and, and the, the flat ontology uh, for which the human in the sense is imagined and, and, and uh, produced? Can you just connect the ideas that you have around the economy, the dominant economic stories, as a bearer of that deep ontological project and how it operates. You know, I'm interested, you know, for example, the attention economy. Uh, how does that uh, economy operate? How do we recognize it? Um, and how does it diminish our, our possibilities for a richer notion of well-being and flourishing? Uh, yeah. Does any of that make sense? <laughs> it does, it does, it does, it does for her. It's such a rich um, conversational space that, that I'm, I'm navigating which train to hop on to get to, to, get to wherever. It's a network. Um, um, I, I was thinking about Philip K. Dick's um, Electric Dreams, um, the, the, the book, the anthology, and especially the, the filmic um, work done around this collection of stories. Um, I think it's on Amazon Prime. I watched a few of them recently and I, I love sci-fi anthologies. I, I love um, those stories. There's, there's one in particular, I forget the name now, I, I, and, and that's what I was trying to remember, um, that really just, it, it shocks the viewer into taking a second look at what we call health or well-being, right? And if I could just use maybe not the content of it, but the form of it to bring our attention to um, reports around the suspiciously skyrocketing, escalating value of the wellness industry today, which is trillions of dollars and trending towards even more. In the next 10 years, I think $20 trillion is, is expected to be the value of this invitation to go to the gym, to do to-do lists, to, <laughs> you know, to be all fine and dandy. Um, and I know, I, I know it, I, I don't want to be reductionistic or dismissive, you know, like reducing, um, astronomy to twinkle, twinkle, little stars. That, that's not what I'm trying to say here, but that there is something that is, might be marginally alarming to anyone who's taken a close look at, at, um, wellness today in a world that is increasingly at odds with itself, a world that is proliferating, um, viruses and encroached ecologies and damaged system. And together, you know, with, with this, with this rapidly deteriorating set of circumstances, we're experiencing skyrocketing dollar value for a world that is now interested in wellness. Right? It doesn't, it, there's something shockingly Philip K. Dickian about this whole arrangement, right? And, and it speaks to, it speaks to, um, 
the fact that bodies aren't born, bodies are manufactured, right? Wellness is not some ideal. Wellness is an imminent semi-material practice of imbricating ourselves within worlds. The question then is what worlds are being manufactured? What worlds are being constructed? This is the conversation about neoliberalism and capitalism, right? Um, and democracy, right? Uh, that, that you, you cannot even think democracy apart from the neoliberal project and the liberal world order. It seems what is being created across this triad of hyper-concepts is a world apart, a world of mastery, right? Where ecologies around us are just resource bases, right? They have been stripped and they are being stripped of their agency, of their voice, of their vitality, if only to feed this tautological machine, this machine that co-produces and reproduces um, permanence as wellness, longevity as health, right? And that tells us that the more you're able to do this, the more you're able to last, the healthier you are. And I'm listening to the voices of my elders who understand elders, not just from where I come from, but I'm gaining elders every day, right? Elders around the world um, who, who suspect that dying well is a form of good health, right? That there, there is a sense in which learning how to listen to soil, to place, learning the intelligence of the world around you is good practice. That demise, descent, going into the ground, that is a renegade kind of wellness that may not hop on the dollar train or the euro train, but is valuable in a way that is missing in our conversations today. So, um, um, taking these um, world-shaping, world-flattening, world-clearing um, monuments to the capital, to, to perpetuity, to the neoliberal, um, and, and then holding in with great tension this other idea of the molecular, of the fugitive, of the of demise and death um, as, 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 as some kind of fugitive wellness. And connecting that with black scholarship, you know, in my own work around decoloniality, it seems to me that um, there is a powerful, stunning invitation afoot that is still gaining its, uh, its lyrics. But there's an invitation, since we're speaking about music as well, there's an invitation afoot to create subaltern spaces, to co-create subaltern spaces. Um, I'm reminded, brother, of, I'm, I'm sure you've read Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and the idea of number, the number 42 being the, the answer to everything, right? <laughs> number 42. And, and then 42,000 years ago, some scientists, well, not 42,000 years ago, some scientists, contemporaries, uh, uh, recognized that 42,000 years ago, there was a polar shift of some kind. And it drove proto-human populations on the ground, and this is was um, this was this coincided with the eruption of cave art everywhere around the planet, right? Um, 
red ochre handprints on walls, uh, the paintings, right? It coincided with this polar shift, this crisis on the surface. And I think that's the image that comes to mind when I think about today's movement, right? Um, that there is a move, there is a going underground. The wellness that I, I speak about is yet to come. It's, its outlines are still being articulated, but not in not entirely or exclusively in a human way. We're, we're being forced to go underground now to think and rethink capital, to rethink perpetuity and dominance. And that's where the work is in those crafts. Very good. We have a, a writer, John Moriarty. In many ways, the, your Irish counterpart is no longer with us, but he, uh, he would literally uh, put his head into the ground as part of his practice and uh, his questioning of uh, all that uh, we, we, we have taken for, for granted and forgotten, especially because of our colonial experience, which I, I mentioned to you earlier. So, in, you know, the, the Wellbeing Economy Alliance uh, and our invitation to cultural activists and artists is in a, a very specific uh, um, space in, on the island of Ireland because of our, uh, you know, we're, we're seduced and you know, we, we celebrate our Europeanness, our European, our modern experience and our, yeah. our hyper economic success at, at certain yeah. points. But we're also a people who have a deep memory of the trauma of co colonialism. Yeah. We yes. have uh, a great and a really a flourishing aliveness to the importance of uh, language and the way in which language mediates our um, uh, possibilities for alternative ways of being with landscape and our ecology and ourselves actually with each other. But I just, you know, in terms of just to close, um, in terms mm. of your work on decoloniality, I wonder what you would say to us as a, as a people who have that kind of dual experience and yeah. as a, a, as a hub, a, a network who want to, to really uh, draw from that as a generative experience rather than something that is just seen as something intentioned or something that we're trying to get over. Yeah. And, you know. Yes, yes. I, I, I never think about, you know, some people ask me, so, uh, so you're trying to say that, I don't know why I'm all jiving all of a sudden, but you're trying to say we should get rid of toilets and get rid of the internet. No, no, this, this, that's, that's modernity still thinking, right? That, that, that worlds are fashioned uh, in, in zero-sum games. So we get rid of the internet. So we go back to some primitive, like, like the impoverishment of believing that we were proceeding along progressive lines from primitiveness to sophistication is a very, very modern value, right? I, sure. I don't see the world that way at all. Um, even the idea of modernity is, is provisional. Right. It's provisional. It's a way of reading the world, but it's always, we never want to fall into the trap of thinking that, that our reading coincides with the world as it really is. Right. Um, we want to notice our imbrications with our readings and be accountable to our readings and what they allow us do and what they forbid us from doing in the world. I don't think that the task of decoloniality is to get rid of modernity. Right. I don't think it's to pathologize modernity. 
I don't think it's to say, well, let's return to some original idea, right? And I constantly say this, you know, that, that, that the idea of returning is, is a resuscitation of modern uh, choreographies. To think you can return is, is already you feeding on modern cosmologies and resources. So, so to me, this hybridization, this idea that we're constantly in the middle, that we're mixed, so to speak, and there isn't some original intent to recapture, but that, the, but that we can work with what we have, especially the disruptions of today, to frame new and different kinds of futures. That's the promise. The promise is a promise of monstrosities, as I like to say, that, that it's monstrous because it does not lend itself to intelligibility. It doesn't lend itself to the convenience of modern subjectivity, right? And because we cannot think about it, the losers say it's impossible for us to think what comes next, right? Because we cannot think about it, that's where the juiciness is, right? We can, we can, we can take the trauma, um, of our haunted pasts, which are still being made. I must emphasize because the temporality isn't neat and tidy. Even the past are still being manufactured. We can work with these as cartographies of the next, right? Trauma itself is, oh, I'm not going to start on that because that would take us for another two hours, brother. But trauma isn't just um, the mark of the um, uh, 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 trauma. You might say is is the way that bodies are contained. Actually, it has this dual function of containing subjectivity, but also marking the edges where a wild god passes, right? Where something beyond our language is doing some kind of work that we don't know how to process, and so we mark the spot and say, here is where you shouldn't go, right? And I've done some work around this that I call ab therapy. But like I said, that's a whole different conversation. But I think the work of decoloniality isn't to get rid, it's not a successive narrative or a narrative in successes. Uh, it, it, it's not a progressive narrative. Decoloniality is about working with the others around us. And that work of finding the others is always an artistic enterprise. Very good. I think that's a, a wonderful way to to end the hour. And thank you so much for uh, for 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 being with us. I uh, I'm sure we'll you know, we'll make uh, very good use of uh, of of your words. 